Turn with me, if you would, this morning to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. And our focus this morning is going to be on verses 11 through 14. Romans 13, verse 11 through 14. The Apostle Paul says, And do this, understanding the present time, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Let's pray together. Our Father, our God, we thank you that we can come before your word today. We thank you that you have given us your truth. You've spoken these words through your servant, Paul. You have, through your Holy Spirit, given him utterance to give us these words of truth. And Lord, they have been preserved by you for us. And now we have them today to read and to meditate on, to memorize to guide our hearts and our lives. Father, I pray that your spirit would teach us, would mold us into the image of Christ, help us to apply what you are teaching us today in your word. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The Apostle Paul begins this paragraph in verse number 11 with these words, and do this. He is most likely drawing our attention backwards to what he has been talking about in the last passage. And most likely he is drawing us back to this whole section that we've been looking at in chapter 12 and chapter 13. And so I think with these few words, he is essentially summing up all of chapter 12 and all of chapter 13 and reminding us that we need to put it into practice. And so if I were to give my first point this morning in the message, my first point is really from these opening words, and that is to live out the Christian life in sacrifice, holiness, and love. And that's drawn from essentially a summary of chapters 12 and 13. So live out the Christian life in sacrifice, holiness, and love. Back in chapter 12, verse 1, Paul said that we are to offer up our bodies as living sacrifices to God. And this is how we worship. This is our true spiritual act of worship to God, giving him our whole selves. So everything that we are in mind, in body, in spirit is to be given to our God as an act of worship to him. So live out our Christian life and sacrifice to God. He taught us in chapter 12, verse 2, that we are to be continually transforming our minds into conformity to the will of God through the word and through the spirit. So he says, don't don't let your minds be conformed to this world, to this age. 
but your minds are to be transformed, continually being transformed by the indwelling Holy Spirit and by the truth of the Word of God. So your thinking is to be molded after Christ, not after the pattern of this world. He taught us in chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, that we are to live in humility toward one another in the body of Christ. That as God has given us different gifts for use within the body, that we are not to uh, use those in pride or, or holding those gifts over others in terms of being superior, but rather whatever gift, whatever usefulness God has given to us in the body, we're to remember that we're all part of one body and that all of those parts are important. And so therefore he taught us to adopt a mindset of humility in living out our gifts and our roles within the body of Christ. Then in the rest of chapter 12, through many uh, just very short exhortations, commands, he taught us that we are to love one another. We're to love each other with sincerity and uh, to live uh, in love before one another and with other people in society. So he taught us to love. So live in sacrifice to God Live in your minds being transformed, conformed to the will of God. Live in humility before one another in the body of Christ. Live in love with one another. And then the opening verses of chapter 13, he taught us to live as citizens of the heavenly kingdom, even as we live as citizens on earth. He said, oh, as Christians, we need to obey those authorities that God has placed over our lives. Because providentially, he, they are there because of his will. So as ultimately citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we are to also live as that, as we live as citizens in society. So remember who you are and live as citizens of the kingdom of God. And then last week we saw in verses 8 through 10 that we have a perpetual obligation to love our neighbor as ourself. And so he's taught us to sacrifice as worship to God, to humble ourselves before others, to love others, to live as peaceful citizens and obedient citizens within society. And now he is telling us the reason why we should put into practice all of those things. So, and do this is essentially all of chapter 12 and chapter 13. Now, here's the why. Understanding the present time, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. So why should we put into practice all of these Christian virtues and live out the Christian life in this way? Essentially, he teaches us in this passage because the end is near and our salvation is imminent. The end is is near, and our salvation is imminent. He says in verse 11, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. And I think what he's saying there is the idea of comparing awakeness to sleepiness or being awake and being asleep is the contrast between being in Adam or in darkness and being in Christ, and being in the light. And so the hour has come, meaning that the new day has dawned, 
in the sense of the, the, the age of Christ has dawned, not only in terms of salvation history, but also in terms of your individual lives as believers, the age of Christ has dawned within you. And so no longer live like you're in darkness. No longer live as asleep like those who are in darkness. Why? Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. And in in saying that, Paul talks about our salvation as being future. And that's an interesting thing to think about, isn't it? Because the New Testament talks about our salvation in different time references, doesn't it? The New Testament, depending on the passage, can talk about our salvation in the past tense. You have been saved. By by the grace of God through faith, you have been saved. So it can talk about it in the past tense. Uh, Depending on the passage, the New Testament might talk about it in the present tense. You are saved. Or even in a progressive sense, you are being saved. In the sense of your sanctification uh, in progress throughout this life, you are being saved. But then we also find passages like this where the New Testament talks about our salvation still being future. And what does that refer to? Well, usually when our salvation is talked about as being future, it's talking about the last day. It's talking about the time when Jesus actually returns and we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And at that moment when Christ is the judge of all the earth and he separates his people from those who are not his people, the sheep from the goats, the believers from the unbelievers, that at that final day, we will be saved from the wrath of God. So we have been saved by the grace of God. We have been adopted into the family of God. We are being saved. We're progressively being conformed to the image of Christ through the Holy Spirit. But there's also a sense in which we will be saved when Jesus Christ returns and we stand before him in glory and he welcomes us into the eternal kingdom of Christ instead of eternal condemnation. We will be saved. And so Paul says the time of our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. And that's just a, it's kind of a truism, isn't it? That's, that's just kind of a, 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 an obvious point in the sense that we have believed at some point in the past and time is continuing to progress, meaning that as time continues to progress, we're each and every day growing closer to that time of that future salvation right? That, that future time when Jesus Christ returns. When will that be? We don't know, do we? We don't know. As you read the New Testament, it seemed like many of the apostles thought that Jesus Christ could come back even within their lifetimes. They looked for it. They, they, they told their readers in these different churches to be watchful and ready for the coming of the Lord. So I believe they fully saw and anticipated that Christ could come back during their lifetimes, but they didn't know. They didn't know the day or the hour. They probably did not foresee that Christ's coming would be delayed by some 2,000 years. They expected his imminent return. But here's the point. So should we. 
so should we. They thought he could come back today, and he could have. We should also think that he could come back today, because he might. That's the idea of imminent. The idea of imminent is not necessarily that it's, it's near in terms of we know when it is, but the idea of imminent is the sense of it's near because it could happen at any moment. And so at any time, Jesus Christ could return and our salvation future will then be reality. The redemption of our bodies, as Paul refers to it in Romans 8. And so we are in, we are in this time in which our salvation is drawing near. Our salvation is imminent. One older commentator, Henry Alford, puts it this way. On the certainty of the event, that is, the coming of Christ, on the certainty of the event, our faith is grounded. By the uncertainty of the time, our hope is stimulated and our watchfulness aroused. In other words, we are, our faith is grounded in the certainty of the coming of Christ, but our hope and our watchfulness is stimulated by the fact that the time is uncertain. And so that's what this passage is about. Paul is encouraging us to live in this way because the salvation that Christ is bringing to us could happen at any moment. In other words, be ready, because it could be today. He says in verse number 12, The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. And here I think he's talking in terms of salvation history. I think he's talking in terms of this age is almost over. And the age of the kingdom of Christ in terms of his coming is almost here. So we are, we are right up, pushing right up against the edge of that dawning of the new age. That was true for him in AD 60, maybe when he's writing this but it's also true of us in 2019. We are pushing up against the edge of the horizon of the dawning of the return of Christ. And so in light of that, he says, wake up. So he uses this imagery of darkness, of nighttime and light and the dawning of the sun. He uses that as a metaphor for our ethical behavior, the way that we should live in the world. So because the night is almost over, because the day is almost here, because our salvation is almost here, let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. In other words, don't live anymore as if you are in the night. In the age of darkness. In, but live as if the day has started. Because the day is almost here. So, in, back in chapter 12, Paul said, in view of the mercies of God, here's how you live. He was looking past, wasn't he? So in light of the gospel, in, in light of everything that Christ has done, in view of the mercies of God, this is how you live. Now it's almost like he's turning our orientation toward the future. In view of the coming of Christ, in view of the dawning of our salvation, this is how you should live. 
So both past, the mercies of God, and the future, the coming of Christ, are used as motivations to teach us how we ought to live in this age. It's almost as if Paul is wanting us to to see ourselves in the new age and live like it in the present. Live as citizens of light. Literally, he says, put on the armor of light. And it's interesting because a very close parallel passage to this is the one that we read earlier in the service from 1 Thessalonians 5. In that same passage, he talks about some of the similar imagery of darkness and light. He also talks about the armor of God. He talks about putting on the helmet, the breastplate. And here he speaks of the armor of light. This idea of Christian armor is most fully expressed in Ephesians 6, isn't it? Ephesians 6, he, he lays out all of the pieces of our spiritual armor. And he speaks of it in terms of spiritual warfare because we wrestle against principalities and powers and the darkness that is in this world. So we need to put on the armor of light in this dark age and we need to live as citizens of light and put on the armor of light even though we are still in this present age. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. So first he says, live out the Christian life in sacrifice, holiness, and love. Why? Because the end is drawing near and our ultimate salvation is imminent. And finally, he says, therefore, in light of our coming salvation, lay aside the works of darkness and live as children of light. Lay aside the works of darkness and live as children of night. It's very interesting what Paul does here with light and darkness because he uses it on almost several levels. On the one level is just kind of the literal level of light and darkness. And in the ancient world, the, they were governed by uh, the sun, right? Their, their days, their time was governed by the sun. So when you went to sleep was governed by the setting of the sun. You might stay awake a little bit longer after the setting of the sun, but you used candles, used a lamp. But you went to bed not too long after the sun went down, after it was completely dark. When did you get up? Well, when the sun started coming up, the sun started shining through your windows and that's when you got up. So their, their lives were uh, governed by the rising and the setting of the sun. And in the ancient world, you were viewed as lazy. You were viewed as a sluggard if you did not rise at dawn and rise with the rising of the sun. And so Paul is essentially calling us to spiritual effort, to spiritual vigor, to spiritual labor, and stop being sluggards, stop sleeping at night, stop living like you're in the night and live like you're in the day. And the day is a time for work. A day is a time to get up. A day is a time for activity. And also, interestingly, too, in some of the, the vices that he lists in verse number 13, he says, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery. When do those things happen? Usually at night. So even some of the vices that he lists are more what would be considered late night uh, vices, getting drunk and carousing and sexual immorality. He says, don't live like you're in the night, but live like you're in the day. How many times have you been watching television and uh, maybe 
I don't know, it seems like it always happens because I watch a lot of sports television and uh, something, some news story will come up about some athlete who got into trouble. He got into some fight or he got into an altercation or DUI or something like that. And you know when it always happens? Like one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning. And at almost every time that something like that happens, I make the comment, nothing good happens at 2 a.m. Nothing good happens at 2 a.m. It's almost like Paul is, is thinking along those lines when he's talking about darkness and light. Nothing good happens in the night. These are, these are times when these vices happen. Don't live like you're in the night. Live like you're in the day. So he uses it in kind of this literal way of darkness and day. But he also uses it in kind of a metaphorical way as well. And that is because all the way throughout the Bible, darkness and light are used in ethical terms. They're used in moral terms. To be in darkness is to be in evil. To be in the light is to be in righteousness and truth. And so he's saying, don't live in the night, not, not just literally and do these deeds that often happen in the night, but even, in, even morally and ethically live in the light, in, in the light of the gospel, in the light of the truth. And he also uses it in another way. Not only literally, night and day, then morally or ethically, darkness and light, but he also uses it salvation historically, in the sense of the moving of time, in which this is the age of darkness, but the age of light is dawning. And so for all of those reasons, kind of like combining all of those images of darkness and light, he's saying, live in the day. Live in the day. Live in the day because that's when work and good activity happens in the day. Live in the day because the day is characterized by truth and righteousness. Live in the day because the day is the characteristic of the coming kingdom of Christ. So live in the day. And he lists out these vices that Christians are not to be engaged in. Carousing and drunkenness sexual immorality and debauchery. So the first two seem to be paired around the idea of drinking and partying. The second two seem to be paired around the idea of sexual immorality. But the third pair is interesting. Because the third pair are two that we don't normally think of as worldly vices. Or even worldly vices that happen at night. He says dissension and jealousy. And interestingly, those are more vices of the heart, aren't they? It's really evident to see drunkenness and debauchery. It's harder to see a heart of strife and jealousy. But he lists those vices in the same breath as these other vices that we would regard as evil. Just as evil as drunkenness and carousing, just as evil as gross sexual immorality, just as evil as all of that is someone who causes discord and strife between people. Just as evil as that is someone whose heart is given over to jealousy and envy. So don't live in the darkness. Live in the day. And then he says, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ 
and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at a passage in Colossians 3 where Paul used this idea of clothing. And in Colossians 3, he said, clothe yourselves with, and he got specific in listing out certain uh, Christian virtues, humility and, and love and kindness. Here, he just uses as a broad description, clothe yourselves, put on as a garment, Christ. Jesus Christ. Now, what does he mean by that? It seems to, to me that, that what Paul means can be taken in, in two senses. One is the idea that, that in a sense, as Christians, we have already been clothed with Christ. Right? By grace, through faith, we are in Christ. By grace, through faith, we are in union united with Christ. In fact, there's other passages that Paul even speaks of the fact that putting on Christ is in past tense terms. That since, in another passage in Ephesians, he says, since you have put on Christ, here's how you live. So there's a sense in which we have already put on Christ in the sense that we are united to him by faith. But now because of that, hope that we have in the gospel and the truth of who we are in union with Christ, Paul is now using it also as an exhortation. So you might even say, because you've put on Christ, put on Christ. Continue to put on Christ. Continue, and I think he means this in the sense of continue to live your life in a Christ-conforming way. Clothing is a way of portraying to the world who we are, isn't it? So in the sense of putting on Christ, we are seeking to live out and demonstrate to the world that we are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's Christ-likeness in all of its aspects, all of its characteristics that we are to put on. And he says, do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, when we think of the flesh, sometimes we can think of just, just the physical component of our bodies, the flesh. And so we might be tempted to think, Paul is just talking here about physical desires. Things like gluttony, or lust, or laziness, or whatever. Things that are particularly because of the the physical cravings of our body. Certainly those things are included, but what Paul means by flesh is broader than that. What he means by flesh is broader than just the physical body. In the New Testament, especially in the writings of Paul, the idea of flesh is the idea of, of who we are apart from Christ. It, it's the remnants of the propensity of sin, or that, that inclination toward sin that is characteristic of people who are not in Christ, those who are still in Adam, to use Romans 5 language, those who are still in Adam are still in the flesh. Living their life in, in living out these desires. Not just physical desires, 
but even mental or spiritual desires like jealousy and envy and hatred. Those are things that aren't necessarily physically driven, but they're just as much in the flesh as the desire for sexual immorality or gluttony. So the idea of being in the flesh is that which is characteristic of an unchristian life. Whatever those desires are, and Paul acknowledges that 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 pull, some of those desires are still there. Even though we are in Christ, even though we are being transformed by the grace of the Holy Spirit, even though the Holy Spirit lives inside of us and we've become a new man in Christ, even though that's true, there are still these desires that remain that pull us away from Christ. And Paul is saying here, don't think about how to gratify them. Another translation says, make no provision for them. In other words, whatever you need to do, take steps, take precautions, put into effect plans that help you to stay away from your sinful inclinations. That's going to be different for for all of us. Some of us are more tempted, more inclined toward jealousy, envy. Some of us are more inclined toward gossiping and, and slandering people. Some of us are more inclined toward lust or some of us are more inclined toward laziness. Whatever it is that our, our inclinations or our temptations, Paul is saying, don't make provision for them. Don't even think about how to gratify them. Take precautions, take steps so that those things, those temptations are as far away from you as possible. Why? Because we're supposed to live as people of the light, not people of the night. Because Christ is almost here. And so my exhortation to us this morning from Paul, from God, is live today as if Christ is coming today. Live today as if Christ is coming today. And we'll see you doing what you're doing today. Live tomorrow as if Christ is coming tomorrow. And we'll see what you're doing tomorrow. Because here's the thing. He may come today. He may come tomorrow. He may come a hundred years from now. But either way, even though he has not yet come, he still sees what you're doing, right? So you might as well live as if he's coming back today and we'll see what you're doing because he's already seeing what you're doing. So live in the day, live in the light, live as if your salvation, your final salvation, the day of Christ could happen today. And may God give you the grace to live that out. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the grace that you have given to us in Christ. We thank you that we have been made into a new creation. We are now a new person, a new man in Christ. You have transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. All of that, Father, is by your grace by your love. Lord, now as your people, in faith, in hope of the day to come, 
with our eyes set on the heavens, with all the grace and the strength that you can give us. Lord, may we live out our lives in watchfulness, in purity, in holiness, as we look for the dawning of that great day. Lord, may we live as citizens of light because you have made us citizens of the light. Help us to live out who we are. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.